This is my second podcast on A Child's Christmas in Wales, but actually it's the second podcast in a short series of reminiscences about movie-going in Washington, D.C. as an 8, 9, and 10-year-old little boy long, long ago. And the fun of it is that the whole point of the exercise was monster movies. Now, we're talking back here, um, 1961, 62, 63, and as I said, I had uh, been attending, if that's the word, um, Saturday matinees at the Calvert Theater on Wisconsin Avenue, where we would just be overcome with fear and shock as we watched The Crawling Eye, The Alligator People, The Colossus of New York, Conquest of Space, and The Last Days of Pompeii. But then... Uh, it turned out that if you watch television, usually on Channel 5 or Channel 9, WTOP, which would play a significant role later, you'd see the previews of the movies that would be opening on Wednesdays in those days in the downtown theaters. And it suddenly occurred to me, because every morning and every afternoon I would take the bus, the number 30 bus up Wisconsin Avenue, from Georgetown, where we lived, up to St. Albans School, and back with my friends Gary Baxter and Cammie Brown and um, uh, Peter Bielan and uh, uh, others, including uh, uh, um, some um, lovely things that we had a childlike puppy love interest in who were going up to National Cathedral School for Girls. But it occurred uh, as a radical insight that I could get on the 30 bus and go down on a Saturday afternoon and see one of these movies at a first-run movie theater. Now, in those days, Washington had three uh, big downtown movie palaces, none of which remains to this day, although the sort of capstone of the Lowe's Capitol is still in place, but everything else has been replaced. And those three were the Archeo Keith's Theater, to which, in fact, it turns out Woodrow Wilson used to go when he was the president, right across from the White House. And then on G or F Street, I think it was G Street, were the two uh, large ones, the Lowe's Capitol, which was vast and huge and right out of the Ziegfeld Follies, and Lowe's Palace. Now, these theaters would uh, open, usually a double bill, and not always, a horror movie that people wanted to see on a Wednesday, and Saturday was the big time to go if you were a kid. So I'd get on the bus, and here I'm giving the childhood memory to this thing, and I'd get on the bus in Georgetown, pay my, with a school bus ticket or whatever I had, and go down and get off uh, just opposite the White House and walk uh, about uh, three blocks to the Lowe's Palace Theater. And uh, the uh, place was huge, and here's just a little boy. In the early days, I just went alone because I didn't really have any friends who were, were interested in doing this. And so this, you can say it's a little pathetic. It's a little touching to me, obviously. It's very touching, this little kid with shorts and a little button-down shirt. Uh, uh, all alone with permission, uh, going downtown, and I'm 10 years old, I'm in the 5th grade, the B form, uh, or the 6th grade, the A form, and I get off the bus, and I walk alone, and I give my money, and I see the premature burial. Well, you'd come down, the, you'd, you'd pay your money in a very traditional uh, glass booth, and then it was a long, and now I know, because I've seen photographs of it since, uh, both from the Library of Congress before the theater was destroyed and earlier, uh, a very beautiful, sort of a Charles Adam, very Palladian, but Baroque and movie palace, long walk down 
to the actual auditorium itself. And then you'd open these doors with these great brass handles. Uh, and the usher, who was still in those days, it wasn't long ago, actually, but there they were. They were still dressed in the, the habiliments of an usher with a kind of tuxedo. They'd take your ticket, and in you'd go. And I'd always go up to the fourth or fifth row because that was cool. Now, the premature burial uh, was directed by Roger Corman and stars Ray Milland and Hazel Court and uh, was written by one of my faves, as you know, Ray Russell, together with Charles Beaumont. And it's obviously based on the Edgar Allan Poe short story. Um, and it is a absolute classic of the Roger Corman sumptuous do a heck of a lot with no money type of color technicolor film and it just stopped my mouth what uh, you went to see was because it was on the television previews you went to see the opening scene there's a uh, fellas are gathering uh, uh, there's a couple people who are very well dressed they're obviously doctors and they're getting their uh, grave robber toadies played by very familiar people I know now but I knew none of this then and uh, they're uh, digging up a body to be used in some horrible uh, diabolical experiment using electricity and revivification and uh, you name it whatever it is and uh, they're uh, lighting cigars and they're uh, rather sophisticated uh, detached, but Raymond Land is distinctly uncomfortable. But you're all waiting for the scene when they pull open the coffin, they lift up the top of the coffin, and it has all these scratches in red, obviously bloody scratches, and it's a very horrifying image when you think about it. <clears throat> and then the, the two grave diggers uh, scream, oh! <clears throat> they they jump out of the hole and you all look and the camera zooms in just instantaneously on the horrible visage of a man who's been buried alive and the camera freezes. It's an actor, I think, uh, but the camera freezes and premature burial in yellow letters comes off and the, the, the it stays, the frame is frozen on this terrible visage of the poor fellow who had now dead, who had been buried alive with a look of absolute horror, panic, and just, just, just the most repellent thing. And it was so cool. It was so amazing where the camera zoomed in and the music just gave it a anyway that was what the 10 year old remembers and of course at that point because it's done at the very beginning of the movie you cannot leave you're completely hooked it was a little like the crawling eye but remember I was a year older now I was so much uh, older than I'm younger than that now and so you see this and you're hooked now uh, the, the rest of the movie involves a plot of, of, uh, of a woman and uh, a plant uh, in uh, uh, his life and the play they're playing on his fear of catalepsy but it had one other thing that the little boy remembers and this is where the little boy is very alive all of the rest I forget with the exception of that opening zoom with one great Alfna, uh, exception and this is it there's a dream sequence. Uh, he has a kind of nightmarish cataleptic dream in which he, he believes he is being buried alive. He's not, but he believes he is, and he's going to be later on. And he is um he has a dream sequence with all these people laughing at him and all these he's in a kind of mausoleum that he has purpose built uh, with all these sort of uh, protections should he be buried alive and should he not be able to get out of his coffin he has all these different protections and um, everything from a telephone to bells to special latches and you name it but during the dream sequence he gets out of the he dreams that he's uh, come alive again and the whole place is full of uh, Edgar Allan 
Poe, um, the spider's webs and uh, rats, and it's just a horrible place. It's gone to seed, and he he's desperate to have something to drink. He's just come out of the grave in the dream sequence, which is shot through filters and all sorts of distortion, and he grabs for a beautiful goblet that he thinks is going to have something in it, and he pulls the top off the goblet, you know, like a uh, like like a, uh, in a where you keep a ciborium, he pulls the top off it, and the camera zooms down, and it's full of maggots, just crawling over the slimy, horrible maggots, and you just jump out of your chair. Oh, that is so gross. Well, for the little boy, that is just that makes the movie. When I said recently in a Journey podcast that um, I believe this was the greatest movie ever made, I meant it, and yet, uh, so the premature burial uh, hook me forever with the uh, Roger Corman, Technicolor, prima, uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, um, supernatural horror, um, gothic movies. Now, um, week after week from that point on, whenever there was anything remotely like this, of course, Italian sword and sandal things like uh, The Colossus of Rhodes, which I had no idea was so good, although that had a very neat uh, moment in which a guy is uh, imprisoned in a bell, and then they torture him by ringing the bell and he has all the blood coming out of his ears well i mean if this is little boy heaven and they would have you know hercules with steve reeves and we you'd come 300 spartans we'd go down for all these and we loved them and sometimes i'd go with a friend and sometimes alone but the real interest lay in the edgar Allan pose now um right before uh pit and the pendulum i had actually seen another one down there though premature burial is the one that has such a lasting hold on my heart because of the maggots and the and the zoom down into the man who had been prematurely buried but in pit and the pendulum there was a another thing that had a had a devastating impact and i saw that one while being in the balcony that was the first one I actually ever saw down there, and I saw that with my dad, uh, and then he sort of launched me so I could see the rest of them on my own. But in uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, which speaks for itself, there's one scene that made an impression, as no others did, and I saw it years later in college, and I was surprised that the thing that I thought would have had such an impact on the little boy, which was that uh, that swinging pendulum down on poor John Kerr, uh, as it's uh, threatening to cut him in twain, that's not what had made the impact. What made the impact to the child was the flashback, again, or the dream sequence in which Sebastian, the the soon-to-be maddened out of his mind, Vincent Price character is telling the story that when he was a little boy, when he was about seven, he wandered down in his little um, Spanish uh, um, Renaissance doubloons and uh, doublets, I think is the proper word, uh, and his little costume there. He's in this costume spectacular, which is really well done. He's wandering, and this time it's all in a pink kind of filter, and he wanders into his father's torture chamber just innocently one afternoon, but what he he sees there is much worse than anything he could might have been able to uh, to see. He sees, uh, he he sees and understands the primal image. He sees that his his mother is uh, having an affair with the uncle, and he sees his mother and his uncle uh, lost in a in an illicit embrace, which I didn't understand as a kid, although I knew something awful was happening. And then there's a murder, which he also sees, and I did understand that. And I think it takes place with a with a uh, brand. A poker, a white hot poker, and in this pink smoke everywhere, distorted land.
man's thing. The little boy sees something that is so shocking that inwardly he goes over the precipice of complete mental illness, and that is underlined in the movie. And later on it comes to roost in the climax. But none of that I understood. What I remembered was the little boy in the dream sequence and the distortion seeing something horrible. Well, you can understand. Now, some people say, well, how could you see a movie like this? That's not how little boys uh, really think. They think this is really cool. They just live for this kind of stuff. Obviously, it's a way to to exercise. There are all sorts of psychological theories, many of which I accept. I fully believe they're true, and I've, I've known it in a way instinctively. But um, the little boy sees the prematurely buried corpse and the maggots, and he that is where he lives. Uh, Thornton Wilder wrote a, a wonderful um, um, uh, section of his book, Theophilus North, uh, in which a little boy has scatological um, humor, and which is rooted, actually, in a problem he has with a member of his family. And Thornton Wilder plays a tutor to a wealthy family who understands very quickly that the, the link between the scatological humor of the sort of eight-year-old boy and something far bigger is there, and he very artfully, lovingly, compassionately, and brilliantly solves the little boy's problem uh, with the help of his sister. And that's in the remarkable uh, semi-detective story touching series of vignettes with a kind of great humorous underlaugh called Theophilus North, which is the um, last book of Thornton Wilder, if I'm not mistaken. Now, that's Pit and the Pendulum. Now, I was hooked for life. Uh, a few years later, I went down with uh, my friends Bill Bowman and Lloyd Fonville, and together, in this case, we were a little older, and we got permission to go on a Friday night. And this time, it was at Archie Keith's. And we, on a Friday night, are you, can you kid, kid, sixth graders, seventh graders, whatever we were, and we went down on the bus, although somebody may have driven us, and we saw the Raven. Now, the Raven is a very interesting case. That is a late Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movie that is a spoof. It is a deliberate takeoff, uh, meant to be very funny, on all the cliches of the uh, of the Edgar Allan Poe cycle. And uh, at the time, we th- I thought it was hysterical. It had Boris Karloff in it, and Peter Lorre, and Vincent Price, and actually had, uh, I think in his second role, or maybe his first role, Jack Nicholson, a very young Jack Nicholson. But none of that I noticed. We were only interested really in Boris Karloff being in it, who plays a a mad, uh, brilliant, but also cuckolded um, magician in a castle. And they, uh, he and uh, um, Vincent Price have a battle of the very modest special effects of magician's battle. Well, this was the Harry Potter for us. This, there was no great plot, but it was just cool because Boris Karloff was in it, had a great set. It had all the cliches. It had a corpse that comes to life and says, beware. And uh, the music was great. And I've seen it many times since on video, and it just doesn't hold up as far as I'm concerned. But it was just, uh, we just loved the fact that we could both laugh and enjoy it. We were at that sort of, there was no camp ironic thing involved yet here, but there was something absolutely delightful about the raven. Well, I'm almost uh, finished, but I'm not quite because I have to talk about two other experiences in this period of the movie-going life that where you see the child at work. You see the little child who's interested in that which is gross and physical and disgusting and is also fully open to a genuine scare, and has his eyes, and, and there's no, uh, we're not in puberty yet, the, 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 at least I was not at all aware of anything beyond the, um, the little boy side of it, and it's a, a touching thing, but um, not long later, we saw the sort of, high, I saw it, uh, the, the high point, I 
can't remember if I saw it alone, but my friends all saw it later. The high point of the Roger Corman cycle, from Roger Corman's point of view, is called The Mask of the Red Death. And this movie is a supposedly opulent, high-budget work that was filmed in England I, uh, with very elaborate, long sets, and it has Jane Asher. Now, I was aware that Jane Asher was um, the girlfriend of, I think, Paul McCartney. That was all beginning to happen. And I remember thinking, my gosh, she is beautiful. She is so pretty. She's sort of the ideal uh, girlfriend. Um, but uh, Vincent Price and Hazel Court again and Patrick McNee or somebody like that, uh, they're all in this thing. And it is um, a, a poetic uh, tale with a kind of downbeat, heavily psychological ending of uh, Prospero who gives this great ball during the great uh, uh, plague and it's a ball that is doomed to the appearance of death and the death of everyone from the red death of plague and it has an extremely downbeat ending. But because Corman was sort of in an arty mood at that point, he put in a kind of a, a kind of a, a, an element that came out of the seventh seal, as we saw it, because even then we were beginning to shift our allegiance to the, uh, to the art movies. We were so taken with what movies could do that as we began to come into a little bit more maturity, uh, I began to go with Lloyd and others uh, into the uh, beginnings of an interest in movies uh, that uh, began to appeal to us in the foreign movie side, because Hollywood we saw as one thing, and art we saw as something else, and I'm talking about being age 12, but the um, the Mask of the Red Death uh, has death coming with a big red, or maybe it's a yellow robe, like a, really a bed sheet, and uh, at the end, the several servants of death gather, and, you know, where hast thou been, brother? Ten thousand have died tonight, that sort of thing. Um, what touched us was that little arty, that little arty sort of mythical thing of having the angels of death dressed in these long overcoming shrouds which we did in fact begin to associate with Ingmar Bergman can you stand it but we really did and later on when Bill and Lloyd and I made our uh, uh, the, the movie The Journal of Jonathan Harker which was uh, our version of Dracula we concluded by putting Lloyd uh, in a uh, red sheet wrapping him up exactly as we remembered it from The Mask of the Red Death and he comes on after I have killed Bill Bowman <laughs> The vampire has won. These were pretty awful endings for uh, little boys, uh, and it has a very a negative ending, our little movie, and then Lloyd, uh, but of course completely disguised. Uh, we know that it's Lloyd with a red sheet, but we hope you'll see it as simply the um, Ingmar Bergman-esque Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe um, mask death figure who says, death has no master. Now, this movie for us represents the kind of bridge into something a little different, a little a little bigger, a little artier, a little a little wider, a little less um, maggots in chalices type of thing. But uh, The Mask of the Red Death definitely said it. I remember when I saw it, this is so cool because Hazel Court gets to run through about nine different rooms. Uh, Nicholas Roeg uh, filmed it actually, so it's a high class shot uh, filming with, with a purple room and a black room and a yellow room and a blue room and a red room. And uh, we said, oh my gosh, they're blessing our interest. They're finally responding to our little interest and making something big as opposed to something just neat. Well, um, years later, I returned, actually just about a year later, from my last matinee. It's the last matinee I ever attended. I did go to the haunting uh, not long after that, but the last, uh, the last matinee of this sort that I ever attended was on a Saturday afternoon at Lowe's Palace about a year later. <clears throat> 
and I was beginning to grow and to make the change, but I could not resist going to see The Cabinet of Caligari. Now, I'd seen the ads on television, and this was a supposedly shocking remake of the original movie that we'd also seen along the way, uh, the uh, the old 1916 or 1920, whatever it is, Robert Wiene version of Cabinet of Caligari, the German expressionist masterpiece, which that's what they said, but what I wanted was still what I always wanted in these movies. And um, so I went down to see this new, strange, black and white cabinet of Caligari. You weren't supposed to go in the theater. Don't tell anyone what happens in the last 10 minutes. It will blow your mind and all this kind of thing. And it starred Glynis Johns, who I remembered. I sort of liked Glynis Johns because she had been a a character actress in movies uh, like Mary Poppins, or um, I'm sure you can think of the others where she appears. And she's a delightful, pretty, but very always plays the young mom or the very uh, fine, um, high-minded sort of person, more or less. Well, Cabinet of Caligari was a, a change for her, and it was a change for me. And I went all alone to it, and I thought it was great. But here's the child mind. The child mind sees in the Cabinet of Caligari at the very end where uh, she's in a mental hospital. She's actually being kept in what appears to be a nightmare kind of Frank Lloyd Wright glass house, which turns out, of course, to be a mental hospital, but you don't know that. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, um, Dan O'Hurley, plays both an evil psychiatrist and a sort of good um, advisor, two different parts, and you can see it a mile away and it's so forth and so on, but I didn't really see it, and I thought it was extremely cool with barking dogs and this glass house she couldn't get out of and all sorts of horrible people around her and terrible you know, possible pictures of torture which turned out to be uh, shock treatments later on and so forth and so on. Uh, but uh, what you remember in this is at the very, very end of the movie. Um, she's running around in this uh, crazy inner world and uh, she goes into a bakery and a, a guy, a big uh, grinning, awful, sweating uh, fat, gigantic cook um, takes something out of the oven and it's a, a, a cooked little baby. It, 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 it looks like a turkey, but it's not. It's a little baby. It's a cooked little baby being brought out of an oven. And it's such a horrifying image. And ho, 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 ho. Now you're going to say, can you, would you, who would ever watch that? Well, listen, don't be politically correct here because this is the way it was. These images, which uh, which weren't that bad, I mean, compared to what you can see today, they're nothing. Uh, but And the whole movie is so lame with this one image of a cooked uh, baby being brought out but looking like a cooked turkey. It, it was not that bad. It was, it was extremely um, cool, uh, amazing. It's stuck in your mind. We didn't have any connection with anything else. We didn't think it was, obviously, it's birth, you know, and all that. But to us, it was just an incredibly cool cool, striking, memorable image, which made it sort of worth the while, having come all the way to see this kind of silly movie all the way down. And there was one other thing in the movie that left a devastating impression on people who were just beginning to be about 13. There's a scene in which um, um, uh, Glynis uh, Johns tries to seduce the evil Dr. Caligari, who it turns out is not evil at all. He's trying to help her, but he is working her through various aspects of her Freudian, of the Freudian paradigm, and she tries to seduce him, and she takes off her clothes. And she's sort of caught in a glass mirror door that won't quite open, and the music gets all this kind of saxophone playing. And she tries to seduce him by doing sort of a strip tease. And for a kid of 13, 
watching Glennis Johns, and it's extremely innocent when you see it today. I mean, the editing is such that she, it's like, you know, going from, she has a bikini on that's very large. So there's absolutely nothing in it that, that would have gone over. But anyway, isn't it strange I even have to say that? Because it was really, uh, it was amazing, uh, an odd, striking scene with Glennis Johns trying to do this uh, against the evil Dr. Caligari. And then, of course, he doesn't fall for it because he really is trying to help her, as it turns out. And she runs out and gets caught in this glass door, which goes around and around and around and around. But little, little lights began to go off inside the little boy, saying, whoa, that's, she's pretty. Look at her. She is so pretty. And then this, you know, whoa, this is a whole nother, this is a different key altogether. This is a different stratum of life. So there's kind of a movement there that is very uh, interesting. Well, I've talked about the burial. I've talked about Pit and the Pendulum. I've talked about the Raven. I've talked about Cabinet of Caligari and the Mask of the Red Death. Notice it's Cabinet of Caligari, as they say. Caligari! Because I've seen the preview, which originally sent us down, rather than Caligari. The Cabinet of Caligari. But one final little post note. Um, right in there, um, uh, again on a Saturday night, uh, this little kid, uh, Saturday afternoon, this little kid uh, who really can't find anybody who shares this stuff in the sixth grade. He will find companions in the seventh grade, uh, but not uh, in the sixth grade. He's just beginning, and he's the only person he knows who will admit to liking these movies, although um, it turns out, as it <laughs> turns out, everybody really does of this generation. But I saw that there was a movie playing uh, downtown at Archie O'Keefe's uh, called The Vampire and the Ballerina. Now, this is a 1961 Italian vampire movie. I'd never been exposed to Euro horror at all, didn't know anything about it, and we didn't think in any categories at all. But it sounded cool, and it was on a double bill with a, another quite different uh, Roger Corman movie called The Tower of London. Do you dare spend 62 minutes in the Tower of London? And as we always learned later, the movie was only was 68 minutes or something incredibly ridiculous. Um, it was a very short movie, attempt to be Richard III, but without Richard III dialogue, and it was really, I mean, it's it's actually well photographed, but it's it's definitely lame, and I watched it because I knew the play really well, and I, I, this is not why I came. But I held the line and waited for the second part of the double feature. And The Vampire and the Ballerina is a black-and-white um, Italian movie of a troupe of young ballerinas who find themselves marooned in a castle somewhere, obviously, in Italy. And uh, they uh, do not know, they are unaware that this is the home of a hundred years of old vampire who's disgusting and old. He looks like a really old, old man who I think uh, when he sucks the blood of the living turns into a younger person. But it started out, it starts out with this very, very dumb dance number of these, uh, uh, it's all dubbed in the way those movies were, which we didn't think was ridiculous, but we knew it wasn't quite right. And uh, it's a great they, they approach the castle, which is terrific. Whoa, this is great. And then they do this ridiculous dance that's supposed to be all sexy. And I was still at an age when it, that, unlike the Glennis Johns episode, it had nothing to do with anything. And I just I said, tap my foot, when are they going to get to the vampire? Well, they finally did. And again, I'm going to close with a little boy because the little child sees the zoom shot in Premature Burial, sees the, the, the sequence of the little boy going down into the dungeon and confronting nameless evil in Pit and the Pendulum. The little boy sees uh, the, uh, the, the attempted humor of the raven and uh, begins to, a year later, move on as he sees uh, the cabinet of Caligara with all that it is about. But the little boy is still alive and well. And as the 
in the conclusion, the vampire is lured with the help of a kind of, uh, I just remember it, I've never seen it since, uh, uh, a girl who is good and a, a guy, a young guy who is good, and they lure in some way the vampire up uh, to the top of the castle when the sun rises. And the sun rises, and blum, uh, the scene is illuminated, and the vampire melts. What you see is the makeup is good. The vampire's face sort of turns to mud. No time-lapse photography turns into mud, which is obviously melting, and the vampire's face melts. And the, at, at one point, the, uh, I remember that the, the hero pulled out a crucifix, and he put the crucifix right in front of the face of the melting face of the vampire. And this does, in fact, remind one of the conclusion of Horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee. But I don't think it was intended, but maybe it was. And uh, the, the vampire says, uh, this is I loved, uh, put away the cross. That will not be necessary. I think there's a line in Blackula years later with William Marshall, that will not be necessary. Um, he, he, he's able to say that will not be necessary, and his face melts, and it takes a while because they're sort of watching it and the music is building. And to a little kid, you have to understand, watching a vampire, by the way, these movies, evil Ost always has to be defeated in these movies, even for the little kid because that, that builds up the whole reason these fairy tales are working. These are fairy tales. I'm not uh, going to quote Bruno Bettelheim, but these are fairy tales. And uh, it has to work. And so the, the vampire has to be destroyed. And that's why the end of The Mask of the Red Death sort of shocked me as a little kid, because evil won. Uh, but in any event, the face melts, put away the cross, and it melts and it melts. And we have the end of the vampire and the ballerina. And anyone who was 9, 10, or 11 would have said to themselves, any little boy, I got my money's worth. This was worth 50 cents. Well, that's my story of uh, entitled Premature Burial, of attending these wonderful movies in the early 60s in the grand old movie palaces of downtown Washington. Thank you so much. I hope this has been of interest, and I say to you all, and to one and all, God bless you. <laughs>